knows what a new year will bring. You know, 500 years ago, there was an obscure monk who had no idea that he would be used by God to bring about the most momentous impact on the church, probably ever since it had become an official language of Rome about 1,200 years earlier. It was on October 31st, All Hallows Eve, that an Augustinian monk, professor at the local University of Wittenberg, nailed 95 theses on the door of the church. Now, they were written in Latin for the purpose of debate among Christian scholars. This was just a a normal practice of that day. And it was written to address something very specific, a corrupt practice of that day in which indulgences were being sold. They were being sold to raise money for the building of of St. Peter's in Rome, the Basilica there. And the lead marketer had gone really beyond the bounds of integrity. He was promising, you just place that coin uh, in, the, in the coffer, and as it rings, you are a loved one who is in purgatory, and the soul will spring into to heaven. So you just pay up, you can free up your relatives who are in purgatory. Now, other than scholarly debate with colleagues... Martin Luther was expecting very little reaction. But someone, we don't know who, took down that sheet of paper on the door, translated it into the common language, made copies of it, and distributed it throughout the land. It really was the original social media event. And so began the Reformation. That was the beginning of a chain of events which will culminate in the breakup of the, within the Roman Catholic Church and the birth of the Protestant Church. But the selling of indulgences is really not what the Reformation was about. It's not what certainly led to the division in the church. What became the central issue? What was the central doctrine over which the two branches of the Christian faith still remain divided, is that of justification. What does it mean to be justified before God? How does one become justified? It is the understanding of that doctrine which distinguishes us up to this day. And it is the doctrine that the Reformers proclaimed that the church either stands or falls. Now, for the next five weeks, we're going to be taking a look at five doctrines that are identified as the central tenets of the Protestant faith. They're referred to as the five solas. Sola is the word from Latin. It means soul or only, alone. And so they are, in the order that we're going to be presenting them, are sola fide, by faith alone, sola scripturum, scripture alone, sola Christus, Christ alone, sola gratium, grace alone, and soli deo glorium, for God's glory alone. 
Now, there's a doctrine that underlies particularly those first three. Well, the ones about faith and Christ and grace. And that is this doctrine of justification. So we're going to take time this morning to take a look at that, understand what it means for us. And our scripture text, which was already read, provides an excellent study for that doctrine. You might want to turn back to that in your Bibles. If you're using the church Bible, you're going to find it on 797. Now, I'm going to be reading uh, from the English Standard Version. Pretty much it'll follow the same as what you have in whatever version that you're using. So Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ For all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, here's the context. Up to this time, Paul has been presenting the case that everyone is a rebellious sinner. That includes the pagan Gentiles of chapter 1. It includes the supposedly good moral Jew of chapter 2. And he concludes, as he goes into chapter 3, with a collection. He just puts together a bunch of Old Testament scriptures that expresses the fallen state of everyone in the strongest terms. And he notes that not only are we all sinners... There is no way that any of us can climb out of our condition, even through the law that God gave to us. Indeed, that law, all that it really does is expose our sin. And it holds us accountable before God's just wrath. We are unrighteous people who must someday stand before the righteous God in judgment. We are truly, as Jonathan Edwards said, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And we can do nothing of ourselves about this to to obtain to, to the requirement that's necessary to become righteous, to become justified. Our cause is hopeless. And that's when he writes, verse 21, but now. But now something new has happened to turn our hopeless state as sinners into a reality of acceptance by God. What has happened? Well, he tells us again in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested 
apart from the law. That law was condemning us. This is a righteousness apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. God has stepped in to provide what we cannot. God's law, again, though it reveals the righteousness of God, it cannot do anything to make sinners righteous. Again, not not even the Jews who revere the law. It only condemns because no one can live up to it. So therefore, what God has done is he's revealed his righteousness through another means. This is not actually a new plan. When it says here, the law and the prophets, that's scripture. It's just a way of putting it together and saying, this is what scripture bears witness to it. Okay? So, if you look back in the Old Testament, just as we have been doing, actually, when we're going through Genesis, you can see how this righteousness, new plan, is both prophesied and how it's foreshadowed in the scriptures. So, what is this means? Well, in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Jesus Christ both reveals the righteousness of God as we behold him and his life and hear his teachings. And he becomes the means by which we actually can attain that righteousness, that righteousness that's necessary to be accepted by God. Now, already Paul plays his hand here and he gives the secret of how we are going to access that righteousness. It's through faith. Now, he reiterates before he goes on further the dilemma of all persons. Okay? There's no distinction. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? It's a reminder here. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter if we are the, the Jew who is striving the best he can to follow that law or he's the Gentile who is just pagan and completely far away from God. It doesn't matter whether he's a member of the covenant nation of God and is is near to God, or he's a barbarian in the most godless region as far away as he could be. Everyone has the exact same problem, and everyone needs the same solution. Now, what is that solution? Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God acts out of free grace. We do not win a contest. We do not raise our test scores and then he picks us out. He redeems us freely. He ransoms us from our bondage to our sinful state, and he does something, or he does this through something that Christ Jesus will do. Now, you may have noticed I skipped the first word. That word is the essential concept that we are trying to understand, and that is justified. Paul is borrowing a word here from the courtroom of his day. To justify means to declare a person 
not guilty. It's a legal declaration. Theologically, it means to declare righteous. Remember, that's the problem of, of us all. None of us are righteous. We're all guilty sinners. This is our legal sentence and status. But God now redeems us from that state through Christ. We place our faith in him, and God then justifies us. He declares us to be righteous. What is it that Christ did? Or rather, what mission did God send him on in verse 25? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Have you got your NIVs out? It says, presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Whatever translations you're using or versions, it basically has the same concept. What it's referring to is that Jesus offered himself up before God as a sacrifice that was necessary to pay the penalty of our sin. That's what he did for us. And in that same act, he removed from us the sentence of condemnation that was upon us. Christ did the work. We placed our faith in this work. God then justifies us. Not guilty. You are now righteous. Now, one question you might ask is, why would God go through such a kind of a tortuous course to forgive us? I mean, why doesn't he just say, look, let's, let's just forget about all of that and you are forgiven. Well, the remainder of our text explains this as we continue in verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance over all the years there before Christ, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay? All these years, all these years of sin after sin after sin and so on, God really hadn't done anything about that. And indeed, many were, people were forgiven. But for God simply to forgive sin, for him to say, you know, you know, it's such a mess, let's just start all over. Let's just forget about that. That would necessitate God to have to say, well, that he will no longer be righteous. I mean, you think about this. In fact, as I was reviewing this, this happened this past year. I think it was in California. Remember, there, there was some young fellow who committed a pretty heinous crime, what he had done to a woman. And, and that man's father made a great plea for him. And the judge, even though he'd been convicted, said, you know, we're just going to very lighten that sentence and let you off easy. Well, that judge might have been considered merciful, but certainly what he was not considered was being to be a righteous judge. 
And indeed, the victims of, of a guilty man's crime would disdain any judge that just says, let's let bygones be bygones. You are an unrighteous judge. But we have a righteous God. So through the atoning work of Christ on the cross, that's the answer. God remains just. He maintains his righteousness. Judgment does take place upon sin. Sin which has been transferred to Christ. And he is now able to justify us who are guilty. The ungodly. In fact, in Romans 4, 5 says this. To the one who does not work, who doesn't do anything to attain his, his righteousness, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the point of all this is that Christ has accomplished our justification on the cross. God then justifies us ungodly sinners when we exercise faith in Christ's work. And as Romans 8.1 declares gloriously, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the doctrine of justification. By faith, we are justified before God. We are declared righteous and acceptable by him. Isn't that glorious news? I mean, just praise God. Now, we are righteous before God. But that's when the Catholic Church says, whoa, wait, wait a moment. Slow down here. So the Catholic Church would agree how important it is for faith to be justified. Faith is necessary. Indeed, it is the foundation of justification, but it is only the beginning of what is needed. Faith is necessary for justification, but it is not sufficient alone. And it's not sufficient because of how Catholic theology understands what justification entails. For the Catholic Church, justification it's not, it includes a declaration, but it is not only a declaration. It is coming into a state of being a righteous person. So that God declares a person just, not just because of their faith, but because that person has indeed earned, become a truly righteous person. God is not going to declare anyone, he's not going to justify anyone, he's not going to declare anybody righteous. He's not actually righteous. Now, Martin Luther, in contrast to this, he spoke of the saved individual with this phrase, at the same time, just and sinner. He is justified before he is fully sanctified. And so he is declared righteous in Christ, while he is still a sinner. 
Now, he doesn't fit exactly, you know, that bumper sticker, at least it was very popular a few years ago. Maybe some people still haven't. Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. Well, it's not just forgiven. A change does take place. At salvation, the Holy Spirit enters the heart of the believer and begins that work of sanctification. Okay. And sanctification is continued now. It's, it's working inside of us. But justification is a one-act, one-moment event. We are justified completely before we are sanctified fully. Maybe to help understand this, and I know we we're, sorry, we're getting into a lot of theology, and I'm going to give you some more terms. But if you can grasp it, if you can get these terms and understand this, it just opens everything up before your eyes. Okay? But the two terms that you can look at this, is the, the terms of infused and inherent righteousness versus Imputed righteousness. For the Catholics, the righteousness is an infused righteousness. Consider a bottle of water. This is an image that helps me out understanding it. When you're baptized, there is that infant. That bottle is full. You are righteous before God. The problem for you is you grow up. And you commit sins. And as you commit those sins, that bottle starts to go down. And you've got to get that bottle back up to fullness. You have to be righteous to appear before God. What do you do? Well, there are acts of penance and other things that are required that will help you to offset the sins until the time comes and that bottle is filled back up. Now, in most cases, for individuals, that bottle is not filled up when they are called before God or when they die. So what happens then, that's when they go to purgatory. And in purgatory, what is happening is your sins are being purged. And that bottle is being filled up And when it is full and all sins are gone, you may then appear before the holy, righteous God. You, because again, no one who is unrighteous can appear before the righteous God. Now the Protestant view of righteousness, the reformers, is that of that term imputation. Maybe to help best with that imagery, is consider a bank account. You know, a person has their own bank account that they've worked years and they've built up and they've got a lot of money there in the bank and all they need to do is let someone else put their signature, take it to the bank, that person says, yes, this signature is good, that person's name may be on my account and what happens? All of that wealth that's in that account is imputed to the second signature, and it belongs to them. They never worked for it. In fact, you know, they'd been deadbeats, they got a lot of debts. They used that account to pay off all of their debts. 
It is money, it is investments and so on that does not belong to them, but has been imputed to them. And they can use it, as I said, to pay off their debts. Those are kind of the two images that we have here. So kind of recap it. Let me try to, to bring it back here. Infused righteousness is righteousness that is actually produced within the believer. Now, it happens through the grace of God. It begins with faith. But nevertheless, it is truly that of the believer. He becomes a truly righteous person at some point. Imputed righteousness is solely the righteousness of Christ. And it has been accounted to the believer. None of it belongs to him. The reformers like to refer to it as alien righteousness because it is a righteousness outside of himself. It is the righteousness of Christ. That first kind of righteousness, the infused, it takes hard work to attain. The other righteousness, the imputed righteousness, it's a free gift granted upon belief, that is, by faith alone. In that first righteousness, the person is not ready to appear before God until all sins are purged. For the second person, who's, when the time comes and he must die, he appears before God, he's ready. Because by, his, by Christ's righteousness, he will be accepted before God. I had two good Catholic friends up in Philadelphia. We were meeting one time and we were talking about this. And they'd gone to the funeral of a Protestant believer and the minister is up there. And he's talking about how the de- departed one was in glory. And they just looked at each other and said, I don't think so. Not because he was Protestant, but because he's got to go through purgatory first. You cannot have that confidence of having appear before God at death. Got to have those sins purged. But this is what justification is about. This free gift, this declaration. It's what the Reformation was about. And it continues to be what we are about 500 years later. Now, the Catholics, to their credit, have never been confused about their viewpoint. You know, they never scratched their heads over this. They've, there's faith plus works. It's a pretty simple formula. It's the Protestants who continue to trip over our understanding of justification. You know, when I was growing up as a, as a good little Presbyterian in the South, God's country of South Carolina. I lived according to the Catholic position. Now, I did not have rosary beads. I I did not eat fish on Fridays. But here's how I would have answered anyone who had asked me if I was going to heaven. I'd say, well, I think so. I believe in Jesus and and, uh, I try to be good. I go to church, I go to Sunday school. Now, at that time, I, I, didn't have the, I didn't have the bottle image in my head. The way I thought about it was kind of stacks of 
stacks of debts and assets. You know, one side is a stack of, of debts uh, and the other side of assets. I knew that both were accumulating, but they were behind curtains. So I never really knew where I stood. It seemed like pretty hard work to, to build up the assets, you know, of good deeds, but it seemed really easy to build up the debts. And I, I couldn't figure out the formula. How good did I need to be to earn an asset? How many good deeds could cover a bad deed? You know, it's tougher in this case being a Protestant and Catholic because, you know, if, I could at least have had a priest, but I didn't have a priest who could have told me what I needed to do. So knowing nothing about justification, didn't know what that term was. I certainly didn't know anything about imputation and infusion. I nevertheless, I had a theology. I didn't know I had it, but I had a theology. And this was the theology. Justification is what Jesus made He made possible for me on the cross. He did his part. I now have got to do my part to be justified by God. I need to believe. That's the first thing. But I also needed to live a good enough life to show my appreciation and to be considered a good enough follower of Jesus. And that's what was going to happen throughout my whole life. And I can never be certain if it was enough. Plus, I had the added disadvantage of not being a Catholic. I didn't have purgatory to fall back on. This life is all I got. I got to get it right now. If I don't get it correct now, I'm in big trouble. I knew I didn't have to be perfect. But again, it it was an uncertain standard that I had to reach. And there was an uncertain number of assets and debts. And how could I ever be sure? So I, you know, I, I know I should go to church. I should learn about all the commandments I'm supposed to follow. I need to, to do as many good deeds as possible. In, in brief, I, I learned what most of us, what most of us, haven't we, had been taught over the generations in Protestant churches. Somehow, somewhere along the way, we lost the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. And that might be why many churches have fallen. And mainline denominations just continue to decline and decline. We have turned the gospel, the good news, back into another form of law-keeping. Do this, don't do that. That might be why we evangelicals, even us, who seem to, you know, we hadn't forgotten the gospel. Nevertheless, we can become like Pharisees if we turn up our noses at those, those unbelievers and, and sinners out there who are not even in church today. You know, because they've probably got hangovers and, and whatever else. We, we have confused the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to us with the righteousness we think that actually belongs to us, that's been infused in us, and that makes us better than those sinners who stayed up past midnight last night. No telling what they did. Okay? Now, consider what happens when a church 
and her people have a grasp on this doctrine of justification. We, we understand that we have been justified by the grace of God. Based on the work of Christ. What we hold on to by faith. What would it mean? It means that we wake up each day with the knowledge that whatever happens that day. Or whatever happened yesterday. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're accepted before God in the righteousness of Christ. We belong to him. We belong to him. We cannot be cast out. Now, critics of this say, well, you're going to have that kind of view. You're going to be lazy. You're going to become degenerate. Can that happen? I suppose it could. It could happen for anybody who just has this as head knowledge. But we know this, don't we? Anyone who knows such a doctrine in the center of our heart, who understands what it is to to have been a a condemned offender, and we know we, we deserve that condemnation, and we're waiting for the verdict of guilty to be pronounced, and yet we hear, not guilty proclaimed. That kind of knowledge. That's what leads to the truly abundant life that Jesus promised. It leads to us wanting to do what is right. Us wanting to do what pleases our holy God. Us wanting to be righteous. It's to live a life that is not shackled with chains of of do's and don'ts. To live a, a life as though those chains have fallen off. Now we can freely go forth and follow our Savior and Lord. It's to see ourselves and other sinners, knowing that we are no better than anyone without Christ. We are not more righteous than our neighbors. We are not more deserving of the grace of God because there's no distinction. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And why any of us should receive this, this gift of justification is a mystery, but it's such a wondrous gift that it's worth sharing with others. It is worth living such a life that, that others will be attracted to it. It is such a humbling gift. So humbling that we should love everyone, especially our enemies. And we should never be filled with envy or animosity or pride. And understanding justification, it keeps us centered on what matters. The gospel is not the good news that Jesus will solve all our earthly problems. Can he make you happier than you are now? Yes, for sure. But following him can create a whole set of other troubles that you never would have had. But you only have it now because you follow him. Can Jesus fill the emptiness of your heart? Well, definitely he can. But being a believer in the midst of trials and persecution can at times be a very lonely experience. Can following him lead to a more successful life? Well, if you have been lazy, if you cheated throughout your life, following Jesus can 
can certainly help you. Following him can also mean you might lose your job. And it certainly will not shield you, as everyone here knows, from illnesses and troubles that everyone else goes through. Can the gospel give victory over sin? Yes. But you will find, even as believers, sin still hangs on to you. And you will be surprised how often you can give in. Now, here's the one thing. One thing that justification will definitely do for you. And it will make you realize that the one thing that matters most is the one thing that is most secured. Your eternal, full acceptance before the holy, righteous judge of all the world. Isn't that a good bargain? You Christians, you need to remind yourself of this. The next time you're tempted to ask God, what have you done for me lately? The next time that you're tempted to ask God, what is it that I deserve to have this problem? Remember what you truly deserve. And that instead you have been justified in Christ Jesus. And now there is no condemnation. And then for you who have yet to turn to Christ in faith. Maybe you're like so many of those who, well, you know, I consider myself a Christian. I I believe there's a God and I try to be a good person. Maybe you're the kind who says, no, I, I know I've never believed this. Whatever your story, isn't this a worthwhile bargain to consider? And what better time than the first day of the year? Will you go another year not giving your eternal status before God much thought? Will you go another year hoping, you know, I'm doing enough to get by? Not knowing when the unknown time will be that you must appear before your maker. Why not have your rags of sin removed? And be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He is willing. He's willing to make the exchange with you, whoever you are, whatever you have done. No condemnation. Full justification. Yes, it can be. We give you praise, our God, that you have justified us in Jesus Christ to all who believe. May we begin this year. May we begin every day giving you thanks and praise for what we have in Jesus Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen.